calling this message, Show Me the Money. Show Me the Money. Well, many years ago when Ronald Reagan was the president, a little boy wanted $50 very badly. And he prayed for a whole week. And when nothing happened, he decided to write a letter to God. Well, when the post office received a letter addressed to God, they forwarded it to the White House. <laughs> Somehow, that letter made its way to President Reagan's desk, and he was both impressed and amused uh, to be instructed. And so he instructed an aide to send this little boy $5, thinking that would be a lot to a little boy. Well, the boy was thrilled with $5, and so he decided to write a thank you note to God. Dear God, thank you very much for sending the money. However, I noticed that for some reason you sent it through Washington, D.C., and as usual, they kept most of it. <laughs> How about that? I like that one. Well, today we're going to address one of the most well-known questions of Jesus, one in which he tells us what we owe to God and what we owe to the government. It's the last week of Jesus' life, and he has just finished telling a very powerful parable with what we called an explosive application to the religious leaders. We looked at that last week, and as Jesus focused on God's goodness and on his grace, and on his glory. He let those religious leaders know that judgment was coming. Well, as you remember, they didn't take that very well. They didn't appreciate being called out by Jesus. And so we ended our message last week with verse 12 of Mark 12. And it's here on the screen, it says, they, that is the leaders, were seeking to arrest Jesus, but feared the people for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. And we mentioned last week how sad that statement is. They went away. They went away from Jesus because they couldn't arrest him. They regrouped and they came up with another plan, which we come to today in verse 13. And it says, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. I have no doubt that these particular individuals that were selected to confront Jesus were selected because they were shrewd, because they were clever. The word trap here means to ensnare. It's the same word that those ancient people would use to talk about catching a bird or a wild beast with a net. And so instead of a, a frontal attack, they resort to a stealthy ambush. They're hoping to trap Jesus. In Matthew's history of this conversation, in Matthew 22, he says that they plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. That's what they were looking to do. And so with that in, as our background, we're going to look today at Mark 12, verses 13 through 17. In fact, I'd like to invite you to read it with me. The words are going to be on the screen. And so let's read God's word together. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. And they sent to Jesus some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? 
But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Amen. The word of God. And so as we uh, look at this particular passage of scripture, Luke's account refers to this very select group of Pharisees and Herodians as spies. That's what Luke calls them. They're spies. The Pharisees and the Herodians represented the opposite ends of the political spectrum, if you will. Just as our own country is filled with polarizing vitriol between political parties or competing news channels or professional sports or competing views on economics or the political climate, well, the political climate in Jesus' that day was also a powder keg. I've got to put a chart together that will help you to understand some differences between these two groups. The, the Herodians were very secular in their outlook and, and the Pharisees were very spiritual in their outlook. The Herodians focused on government, and the Pharisees, their focus was on God. The Herodians were pro-Herod, and the Pharisees, they couldn't stand Herod. And then the Herodians were all about collecting taxes, and the Pharisees were very anti-tax. They were opposites in nearly every way, but the one thing that they held in common, these two groups, was that they hated Jesus. They hated Jesus. Well, they had opposite agendas, opposite political platforms. The bottom line is that the line is that the Herodians feared that Jesus would undermine the rule of Herod and therefore their own power, and the Pharisees were worried that he would upstage their religious system that they had crafted so carefully. So the Pharisees are ready to accuse him of heresy, and the Herodians can't wait to charge him with treason. But now, now these two opposing groups come together to take out the common enemy. They're living out that ancient saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so we see this even today, don't we? We see that when people who despise one another's beliefs, they will even at times come together against a common enemy. That happens in the world, and you know what? Sadly, it even happens in the church. Well, these spies use the respectful title teacher as they come to Jesus to affirm his integrity. They say, we know that you are true. In addition, they recognize that Jesus is not the kind of guy that consults the polls before he takes a position. That's pretty refreshing, isn't it? Everything they say about Jesus is true. They say, you don't care about anyone's opinions, for you're not swayed by appearances. That's absolutely true about Jesus. But guess what? They don't believe any of it. They identify him as the one who truly teaches the way of God. Well, they knew that he taught the way of God, but they certainly aren't interested in submitting to the way and the will of God as expressed by Jesus. And we see that today in our own culture as well. People can say all kinds of things about Christ, about Jesus, about God, but they will not submit to the one who is the way and the truth and the life, preferring instead 
to live according to their own way. Well, thinking they have Jesus right where they want him in their trap, these political power players craft a question that they believe will put Jesus in a great quandary. We see that at the end of verse 14. Actually, it's two questions. They ask, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? We want to know, Jesus. And then secondly, should we pay them or should we not? What say you, Jesus? This was a big question in the first century. And they wanted Jesus to answer it so that they could attack him and say, gotcha, ha ha, you're in our trap now. The question is designed to solicit a yes or no answer. But as is often the case, when Jesus has asked tricky questions, he is very skillful and ready to battle the words of man. The topic of taxes is always controversial, isn't it? It's volatile. That tax reform, that's a hot-button topic in in American politics today, just like it was in Jesus' day. And so if Jesus opposed the tax, he would be in trouble with the governing authorities in Rome. And of course, if he approved the tax, then he would be in trouble with the Jewish religious leaders who were so opposed to that tax. And so depending on how he answered, either the Herodians would be ready to have him arrested or the Pharisees would finally have the evidence that they needed that he was not a truly godly person. Which would it be? Would he be an enemy of God or an enemy of the government? They're hoping that Jesus will take the bait in their trap by choosing a side. But instead of going to the right or to the left, Jesus goes up, as he always does, raising everything to a higher plane. He says, I'm not interested in getting caught in your silly little trap. Jesus sees right through the phoniness of the Pharisees. He sees through the hatred of those Herodians. I I kind of imagine them uh, ahead of time. They're kind of high-fiving each other, strutting around. We got him now. We got him. This is it, guys. But it didn't last very long, did it? Look at verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. In Luke's account, it says that Jesus knew their craftiness. That's what Luke calls it. And Matthew's version describes how Jesus knew their wickedness. So that, that's quite a, a, a trait to put all together, right? They're, they're crafty. They're wicked. They are hypocrites. Jesus knows all about them. As spies, they were sly. They were shrewd. These phony flatterers, but they were not really interested in what they should do, they just were looking for a way to incriminate Jesus. But before they can say anything, what does Jesus do? He says, give me a coin. The very coin that would be used to pay the tax that was being disputed this day. And so I kind of picture them, you know, reaching in their pockets. You ever do that when you're at Dairy Mart? You know, you paid for something, you need a few coins to balance it out or whatever. They're looking for their coins. Jesus, give me a coin. Oh, everybody is rushing to find a coin to give it to Jesus so he can fall into their trap. It's interesting, by the way, that Jesus doesn't have a coin, does he? He's the creator of everything, but he doesn't have a coin. The Pharisees were probably excited to give him one because they thought he would side with them. And not only would that alienate the Herodians, their enemies, but 
he would fall into the trap. And so Jesus holds up that coin called a denarius. It was used to pay what was called the poll tax in that day. It was a coin that was minted in Rome and it was made out of silver. In those days, coins were used to spread propaganda, to remind people that they were subjects of Rome. And so Jesus shows what we would call the head side of that coin, and everyone sees the head of the emperor and the inscription, Tiberius Caesar, August son of the divine Augustus. And then flip that over to what we'd call the tail side, and there would be a female figure seated on a throne wearing a crown with these words, high priest. And so the coin was, in effect, a portable idol promoting pagan ideology for the people of the day and reminding them that Rome was always in charge. Incidentally, a a denarius was worth a, a day's wages for a soldier or a common laborer. And so if we were to put that, I guess, into our context today, using the average amount of a, a money, money a laborer might make today, that might be anywhere from a $120 to $250. No wonder they didn't want to pay that tax. No wonder it was bugging them. And so with everyone looking at Jesus, looking at that coin, we hear him say, whose likeness and inscription is this? As he shows it the crowd. Well, the answer is so obvious that they respond quickly, but then they realize the implication of what they've just said. And Jesus has them right where he wants them. They've fallen into his trap, if you will. I don't know if this happened, but I kind of picture Jesus flipping that coin back to whoever gave it to him. The tables have been turned because They now need to answer Jesus' question at the end of verse 16. And so they answer. They said to him, Caesar's. Caesar's picture is on the front. And I love how Jesus drives home the point here in verse 17. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. To render, that word literally means to give back what is his, to deliver, to return, to pay back in full. That coin belongs to Caesar, so Jesus says, give it back to him. The very grammar that Jesus uses is possessive. When he says, whose likeness and inscription is this? Jesus is inferring that that coin belongs to Caesar. And so their taxes were not optional. Instead, they were an obligation. Caesar is due the denarius because he owns the denarius. Well, I want to spend a little bit of time making some personal applications for us from Jesus' first century teaching to our 21st century lives. And as we consider what the Bible says about our responsibilities to the government and our responsibilities to God. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul teaches us that when we come to Christ, We are no longer strangers or foreigners. We are welcomed into the family of God. Look at this verse, verse 19. Paul says, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. I like about one commentator who wrote about this passage. He said, The sovereign Lord rules over all, and within the sphere of his reign, he establishes governments. 
Therefore, being a part of the Messiah's kingdom does not abrogate responsibilities to earthly authorities. We hold dual citizenships, which we are to exercise faithfully and simultaneously. That statement is key. We hold dual citizenships, which we are to exercise faithfully and simultaneously. You know, once upon a time, you could visit and stay at the Texas Longhorn Motel on Route 66 in Glenario, Texas. Now today, it's pretty much a ghost town, but the old motel is still there, and it is located half in Smith County, Texas, and half in Key County, New Mexico. And in its day, it was known as the first and last motel in Texas, depending on which way you were traveling. And so when you spent the night at the Longhorn, you were sleeping in two states simultaneously. You were sleeping in Texas, and you were sleeping in New Mexico. Well, that reminds me of something. When we are, are a Christian living here in the United States or in any other nation, we are living in two states, so to speak, simultaneously. We are citizens of the kingdom of God, and we are citizens of the nation in which we live. For most of us, that is the United States of America. Well, Jesus understood that the Jewish people who were living in Israel thought of themselves as the children of God or as God's chosen people. Jesus understood that God was their ultimate sovereign ruler, their ultimate king. Jesus also knew that they lived in Israel under the earthly rule of a pagan and wicked Tiberius Caesar under the authority of the Roman Empire. Well, friends, for you and me, this means that we are called to be both good Christians who are devoted followers of Jesus Christ and invested in the kingdom work of God, and we are called to be good citizens of the country in which we live. So I want to spend a few minutes just considering, first of all, our responsibilities to earthly government. Let's think about that for a moment. The first thing I want us to notice is that we have a responsibility to obey. To obey. I want to share just a few scriptures out of the New Testament that help us to understand some of these points. In Romans chapter 13, Paul, the apostle, writes quite a bit about our role as citizens in this particular world that we are in. And in verses 1 and 2, he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. That's interesting to think about, isn't it? That we are under the authority of the government, whether we like that government or not. Whether the people leading the government are benevolent and caring and good, or whether they're evil and dictators. A few years back, when a group of friends decided to hike to the Shoshone Geyser Basin in Yellowstone National Park, they came prepared for the unexpected. But what they didn't prepare for was this, fines, probation, and a ban from the park. Three of those friends pleaded guilty to the 
rather minor offense of foot travel in a thermal area after being discovered by park rangers when they were trying to cook their food in the park's hot springs. Well, park representative Linda Vera said, a ranger responded and found two whole chickens in a burlap sack in a hot spring. The ranger found the group nearby and questioned them about their behavior before issuing citations. According to Veris, the laws in place that prohibit access beyond designated trails are there to protect not only the park itself, but the public as well. She went on to say that hot springs waters can exceed 400 degrees Fahrenheit with the potential to cause severe or even fatal burns. Well, Eric Romerill was one of those guys that received a citation, and he says that he and his friends did their best to be careful, double-packing their chickens inside a roasting bag and a burlap sack so that they would avoid contaminating the waters. He said, the way I interpreted it we, uh, was don't be destructive, and I, I didn't feel like I was. Dallas Roberts, another member of the group, says he saw some signage indicating they were in a closed area, but didn't think the signs applied to the hot springs themselves. He said that the group wasn't doing any damage and, and they should have been left alone. Well, you know, that causes me to think this. It's, it's easy to rationalize disobedience, isn't it? Especially when we think we're doing it for a good reason. But often, the restrictions are in place for our own safety, for our own protection. And so we violate them at our own peril. Friends, we have a responsibility to obey the governmental laws, whether they fit with our personal political, economic, or personal views or not. We have a responsibility as citizens of God's kingdom to obey the laws of the kingdom that we live in on this earth. We also have a responsibility, secondly, to pay. Sorry to let you know that, but we have a responsibility to pay. Paul continues his teaching further down in Romans 13 in verses 6 and 7. He goes on to say, For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is is owed. Sounds like Paul kind of knew what Jesus was talking about all those years before, didn't he? We pay our taxes to the authorities because that is our obligation, even if we don't like it. I don't like it. And I know many of you don't like it. I don't agree with everything they do with that tax money they take from me. And yet, we pay it out of obligation. We in America, of course, have, can express ourselves with our voice and our vote. But ultimately, we must pay our taxes because God set up the government, whether we like it or not. This reminds me of the story I heard about a person who realized that they didn't pay enough tax. And so he sent an anonymous letter to the IRS. And he said in his note, he wrote, My conscience is bothering me. Enclosed, you will find $175 which I owe in taxes. If my conscience continues to bother me, I will send you the rest. Yeah. You see, we don't get to pick and choose, do we? Our obligation, our responsibility is to obey 
It is to pay. And finally, we are responsible to pray. We're responsible to pray. In his letter to Timothy, the Apostle Paul makes this statement to the young preacher in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He writes, first of all, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Folks, we're called to pray, even when we don't like the men and women in charge. We're called to pray for them. The United States second president, John Adams, before he joined his wife Abigail at their new official residence in Washington, D.C., sent her a prayer, which he wrote and was recorded for history. And more than 100 years later, in the final year of World War II, President Franklin D. Roosevelt ordered that prayer inscribed into stone over the fireplace in the White House State Dining Room. The prayer says this, I pray heaven to bestow the best of blessings on this home and on all that shall hereafter inhabit it. May none but honest and wise men ever rule under this roof. It's quite a prayer, isn't it? From a, an apostle's first century command to an 18th century prayer by a founding father to a 20th central century presidential inscription carved into stone to 21st century Christians living in the midst of political volatility and uncertainty. May we, brothers and sisters, remain people of prayer, praying for our leaders, whether we like, agree, or support them or not, so that we too, in obedience to God's word, may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. What a powerful statement that should be applied to the Lord's church today, that we lead godly, peaceful, quiet lives, dignified in every way. And so as we journey through this life, recognizing our responsibilities to the earthly governments under which we exist, we also know that we have important responsibilities to the Lord. And so let's finish up by looking at those. Let's consider first, uh, next, our responsibilities to God. Jesus could have stopped with the first part of his answer to his critics in our text today. He had silenced both sides by his wonderful answer, but he wasn't finished yet. Our responsibilities to the government and to God are never meant to be at odds. And so we're not finished yet either. We have responsibilities as citizens on earth and responsibilities as citizens of heaven. It's not either or, but both and. We actually have both on our currency, don't we? On the head of a quarter, what does it say? In God we trust. And if you flip that quarter to the backside, it says e pluribus unum, which means out of many, one. I find Peter's words in 1 Peter 2, 17, very applicable, very helpful in this regard. What does Peter say? Peter says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, 
Fear God, honor the emperor. Let's just kind of look at those statements for a moment. First of all, honor everyone. You know, there are so many issues that divide us right now as a country, as a world. Do you know it's possible to honor even when you disagree? Here, here's a newsflash. That includes what you post on social media. To honor someone literally means to fix a high value by esteeming or prizing them. And so Peter's command here, and it is a command, is to honor people. Honor everyone by esteeming or prizing them. That same word honor in the Old Testament literally means a heavy weight. And so to honor is to treat somebody with distinction. And to dishonor is to treat somebody like dirt. Friends, may our words, may our actions, and our interactions be shaped by honor. Honor for each person, whether they choose to follow Jesus or not. Because each person is made in the image of God. And each and every person is eligible to receive the salvation that only Jesus can provide. And so we are called to honor everyone. Next, Peter reminds us, we are to love the brotherhood. We have an even higher obligation to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. The, love, the word for love here is that famous Bible word, agapao, agape, which means that we don't love only if we feel like it, but we love as an act of obedience. The word brotherhood means those born from the same womb. That means that we are to love brothers and sisters in Christ because we are born from the same womb. And we are to love brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ even when they vote differently than we do. Even when they have a different style of music than we like. Even when they have a different color of skin than we like. Even when they live across the world from us. Even when they're from a different generation than we are. Even when they root for a different sports team than we like. We are to love one another. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Friends, can we commit to not allow our political views to fracture the fellowship of God's church? I want you to remember that among Jesus' hand-picked 12, those men that he carefully picked to carry on his eternal kingdom were two guys who, apart from Jesus, no doubt, hated each other. One guy was Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were all about overthrowing Rome at any cost, violently. That was Simon. Another guy in that 12 was Matthew. What did Matthew do? He collected taxes for the Roman government. They came from opposite sides of the aisle, if you will, but they were on the same team focused more on the kingdom of God than the kingdom of man. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. And then third, fear God. Fear God. Can you sense the increasing intensity 
as we move from honoring all people to loving our fellow family members to fearing God. To fear is literally to revere. To revere. Psalm 128, 128 one says, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You know, sadly, some of us within the kingdom of God, within the church, are so familiar with God that we no longer have a healthy fear of God. That's not a good place to be. We are called to fear God. He's not the man upstairs. He's not our spiritual guru. He is our Lord, our Creator, our Savior, and He is to be revered. Amen. And then finally, Peter loops back around to that word honor again. And it may be the hardest command in this list. He reminds these first century Christians, honor the emperor. Do you realize what an incredible statement that is when you think about the kind of man the emperor was? He was a horrible, horrible human being. The Roman emperors were despicable. They were dangerous. Many times they were deranged. They were worshipers of pagan deities. They were idolaters. They were immoral in every way you could think of. And Peter says, honor that despicable, immoral, horrible emperor. And in a similar way, friends, we are called to esteem, to esteem the leaders above us in our world. Even if we don't like the person. Even if we don't like their politics. Because good Christians are called to be good citizens. I want to finish up by having us look at that very last phrase of verse 17. And they marveled at him. Jesus' enemies, those that were trying to trap him, marveled at him. This is a, a very interesting, strong, compound word that means struck with astonishment and admiration. Think about that for a minute. The Pharisees and the Herodians were struck with astonishment and admiration at the very man that they hated so terribly. We've seen in our study of Mark's gospel that people had very strong reactions to Jesus. His listeners were never passive with Jesus. They were never bored with his teaching. There's no way to just ignore him. He either made people angry or astonished or amazed or in awe. People fought against him or they put their faith in him. And it's no different today. We will either reject him or we will receive him. We will follow him and trust him and go his way or we will go our own way. There really is no middle ground where we get to say, I'm going to go God's way until it doesn't jive with my way. Or when my way feels better, I'm going to disengage with God's way or reinterpret God's way. We don't get to do that, friends. There is no middle ground. And so my prayer this morning is that 
though we may live in two places at the same time, as citizens of the heavenly kingdom and citizens of this earthly kingdom, may we remember the responsibility of holding dual citizenships. And may we exercise faithfully and simultaneously our responsibility to both of those kingdoms in which we live. Will you pray with me? Father God, Father, we've looked at a a passage today that is hard in many ways. And Father, we, we struggle to apply it when we have strong feelings about so many things and so many political things and economic things. And Father, we, we, we struggle. We struggle to honor people that choose not to honor you. How do we do that? But Father, we know that your greatest promise of all is that your Holy Spirit lives in us. And Father, we know that you, through your Holy Spirit, can help us to do and to think and to be the way that we should be. Even when we struggle, Lord, you can help us to do what we can't do on our own. And so, Father, may we be a people, a people that bring honor to the name of Jesus as we wear his name and call ourselves Christians. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to transition now into uh, the next part of our